So turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so we'll be in the first seven verses this morning, and then next week we'll look at the next section on deacons after that. So that way, when you get to the month of November, hopefully you'll have a good idea of what it means to uh, nominate somebody and what you should be looking for and all those good things. So while you're turning there, how does it make you feel when someone makes the statement, don't worry, you're in good hands? Well, probably depends on who is making the statement and what the situation would be. So if you need your appendix removed and you have an excellent surgeon with 15 years of experience and hundreds of appendectomies under his belt, you should be pretty confident that you are, in fact, in good hands. On the other hand, if you show up for a flight and your pilot shows up late and drunk and he says you're in good hands, I would believe him. I wouldn't get on that plane. So if there's something of high value, whether a car, your own body, your house, uh, you better make sure that you're really leaving it in good hands. If you have something you hold dearly, you want to see it taken good care of. Well, the church, it belongs to Jesus Christ. We're his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. Therefore, the leaders of that church must live up to a high standard in order to be qualified to lead her. And the Lord gives us stringent qualifications for the elders in the church to aspire to. Some may wonder, in fact, why are these requirements so strict? None of us can really even perfectly live up to them, so why give them at all? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. It's that because Jesus loves his church, he will have his shepherds living holy lives and shepherding his church well. Jesus laid down his life for the church, and so he calls his elders to be ready to do the same. Because Christ loves his church, elders must be beyond reproach. And that's what we're going to see in this text. So, with that introduction, 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So we're going to look at three points this morning. The first is that elders must be inwardly disciplined. So there are many requirements listed in this passage for the office of elder. And as we walk through them, it will become apparent that these qualifications are primarily focused on the character of the elder. Only two of them really pertain to any level of skill or giftedness. The rest are really about the godliness of the individual. And that says a lot about what Jesus wants in his elders. He wants godly men in positions of leadership who have hearts for his people. Skills are important, but the truth is that all gifts come from God in the first place. 
And he is the one who gifts his people with the grace they need for any particular calling. So the larger concern is whether or not a man has the heart and the character to be an elder. And so as we walk through the requirements for office that Paul mentions, don't think of these as a list of legalistic requirements or things to check off of a list. Every single requirement is really about the heart of the candidate. The presence of every quality in a man is completely dependent upon one thing, and that is his personal relationship to Christ. Because if there's no true love for Jesus and his church, then he will not meet these requirements. It just won't happen. And anyone who lives up to these qualifications to the best of his ability has been enabled to do so only through the working of the Holy Spirit. You know, King Saul had all the outward gifts and all the outward appearances of a great king. But the Lord rejected Saul because his heart was not right before God. Now, David did not have the same impressive appearance as Saul, but he was a man after God's own what? God's own heart. It was his heart for the Lord that made him such a great king, even though he was flawed in many ways. So likewise, the qualifications for elder are not about charisma or talent, but heart. The heart of the elder is all important to his ability to lead well, because the office of elder, as Paul tells us, is a noble one. Paul says that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So desiring to serve as an elder is not a bad thing, but actually a great thing. Now, of course, desiring the office for bad reasons is wrong. As one of my seminary professors would say, motives aren't bad, bad motives are bad. So a desire for the office of overseer is a good thing to have. And scripture actually commands us to think about good things. You don't know Philippians 4.8, it's a good one to memorize. It says, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So the word back in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, for noble, can also mean good or even beautiful. So whether you will ever be an elder or not, the qualities and the office are good things to think about for all of us. Even if you cannot ever be an elder, this passage is something that's worthy of your thoughts, and your time. But with all that said, men, it's a good thing for you to desire to be an elder. One of the most beneficial reasons for us all to meditate on the office is that the qualifications require us to develop discipline in our faith. See the first one Paul mentions there. He requires that the elder be above reproach. This is really an overarching quality which every other requirement is actually expanding upon. The elder and all believers, they need to be above reproach inwardly as well as outwardly. We have to be blameless, not in the sense of being perfect, but in the sense of without scandal. There cannot be notorious sins associated with our names. And the elder in particular needs to have a good reputation before the world. We'll talk more about that later. But for now, we need to understand that a good reputation is not about putting up a front. It's not about putting up a fake facade. Being above reproach originates in our hearts. Both the inward and the outward man are involved in this process of being blameless. 
So we'll finish this point by looking at the inward elements and then address the outward qualities in the next point. So Paul explains what it means to be inwardly above reproach by requiring elders to be sober-minded. Now, the elder needs to understand the weight of the office and the necessity of keeping his heart and his mind under control. The elder is an overseer over the souls within the church. There is an everlasting spirit living in every single person in the church. So there is a seriousness that requires us as elders to be sober-minded and aware of what is at stake in shepherding the flock. The men, the women, and the children of the church, they need careful oversight because their everlasting soul is at stake. And closely connected with that is the requirement to be self-controlled. Now, this word can also mean prudent or even thoughtful. So an elder cannot be run by his emotions. He cannot be run by his desires. They cannot be in control of him. Rather, he must be in control of those thoughts and emotions. Because there's more than a few opportunities in ministry and just in life in general to lose your temper. There are many times where it's easy to be selfish and self-centered. But a godly man has to train himself to consistently deny himself, die to his sin, and serve others. So you could really describe it as having mental fortitude or wisdom or even patience. Ultimately, being self-controlled allows you to set your own desires aside in order to minister to the needs of others. Moving on, Paul, and very closely connected with that, Paul gives the command that an elder cannot be a drunkard. So anyone who is addicted to alcohol or really anything else for that matter is not practicing self-control. You must have the mental strength to deny your desire for drinking or whatever the other thing is, just the same as any other sin. But being self-controlled and sober-minded is not just about avoiding sin. The elder must also positively pursue spiritual discipline in his life. And this is universally true for all believers as well. Every one of us needs to do that. You need to discipline yourself in the faith or you will not grow in holiness. An elder must be a man of the word. It's not enough just to know those general truths about the word or to just show up every Sunday. One of the major duties of the elders is to shepherd the members of the church. And how can they guide the sheep with the word if they're not being guided by it? How can they encourage you to pray if they don't pray? If they do not honor the Sabbath, love their wives, and serve, then they can't expect to train you to do any of those things well. They have no convictions about what they believe. Why should the sheep? That is why the elder must be self-controlled and sober-minded in every avenue of his life, really just seeking to be like Christ in every way. There has to be a special attention given to pursuing holiness. Seeking the Lord is the fountain from which all the other attributes of holiness will flow. And these inner disciplines are the building blocks on which the outward qualities are derived. Therefore, the elder must be inwardly disciplined. Point two. So those were the inwardly, inward aspects. Now, elders must be outwardly respectable. So if the inward man is disciplined in holiness, and that will be displayed through outward honorable behavior. And the flip side of that is also true. If the inward man is immature or a selfish tyrant, then that's going to come out in dishonorable behavior. So by following the outward qualities, we can see a glimpse into the heart. 
Christ does not just want us to be inwardly disciplined, but outwardly so as well. So being above reproach is not just about our personal relationship with Christ, but also how that relationship then drives our relationships with other people in the church. It is a vertical relationship with God that informs our horizontal relationship with those around us. And so part of being above reproach is to use self-control and sober-mindedness in pursuing these qualities of holiness. Well, for the outward qualities, first, Paul says that an elder must be the husband of one wife. And you've probably heard this before, that it can be translated literally as a one wife or a one woman man. And out of all the qualities Paul lists in this section, this is by far the most debated requirement of what this means. Isn't it shocking that the most debated point is about the relationship between men and women? Shocking, I know. Well, some have argued that Paul here was forbidding practicing polygamy, and that's all he meant. And while polygamy was present in Paul's day, it was not common or a well uh, thought of practice even then. So this requirement, it definitely rules out polygamy, but I don't think that's what Paul was trying to say with this requirement. Others think that Paul is requiring men to be married in order to serve as elders. But if you look carefully at the text, that would also mean that elders would be required to have children too. And that would mean infertility would disqualify someone from the office of elder. Unfortunately, neither of those things, I think, is true from the text. Still, others say that Paul is arguing that an elder may only be married once, period, whether his wife died or he's divorced. And this is a possible option, but it's not a very well-defended one, theologically speaking. But the final option is that Paul is calling on elders to be faithful to their wives, Body, mind, and soul, they must love and serve their wives faithfully. He can't be seeking any sort of fulfillment emotionally or physically outside of his marriage. His wife has to be the only woman for him. The elder must also lead his wife in a way that emulates how Christ leads the church. Jesus laid down his life and love for the church. So that is a way in which husbands are to sacrificially love and lead their wives. Now, notice that Paul doesn't say, do whatever the wife wants. He said to love them and lead them sacrificially for their good. So here's why this all matters for the office of elder. If the elder cannot lead or love his wife well, how will he lead or love the bride of Christ? I would argue he cannot. A strong marriage is crucial for an elder to shepherd well. If a husband and a wife are not partners in the ministry together, then the husband is likely not called to the position in the first place. And that doesn't mean that when it is functioning well, the wife somehow becomes an elderess alongside her husband, but rather that she encourages, enables, and supports his work as an elder. And this is by far, in my opinion, the best option for what this requirement is referring to when looking at the text. Furthermore, when we talk about managing the household in a few minutes, we'll see that the same argument is used there as here. So if you can't manage on a small scale, you can't manage on a large scale either. That's the general idea. Next, Paul says that overseers must be respectable. Now, the Greek word can also mean well-ordered or befitting or even modest. An elder needs to live a life such that most people, Christians or non-Christians, would consider it a good life. There needs to be an obvious purpose and an obvious drive to the life that is worthy of respect. 
His character really should be one that inspires admiration from those around him. And I think this connects closely with being sober-minded and patient in life. The respectable overseer is one that inspires confidence and trust from others. He cannot be mired in scandal or under accusations of immorality by the world. I don't take that too far. The world is never going to love the church or Christians. That's just not going to happen. But there's a big difference between being persecuted for your faith and being seen as hypocritical or evil in the eyes of the world. Well, next, elders must be hospitable. And really, this quality all boils down to your recognition, or if you have the recognition, that everything you have is from the Lord. Because if you're totally unwilling to let people into your home, to give up your time, or to in any way be inconvenienced, then you're missing a huge spiritual lesson. Everything we have, including our time, is from God. And why do you think God has given us what we have? Did he bless you with it in order to just utilize it for yourself or to turn around and bless others with what you have? So for you who have received tremendous grace from the Lord, the intended result of all of those blessings is to turn around and bless others too. So the elder really just needs to be willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of others. And I realize that not everybody has a house suited to having people over. I don't think it's limited to just that. I think being hospitable is just being willing to be inconvenienced in order to bless others and help them grow in their faith. And that can be done in many different ways. Elders can be hospitable by meeting with others, by going out to lunch, by just making phone calls or even counseling with unbelievers. I firmly believe that hospitality, one, it's a lost art, but it's, it's also crucial, a crucial aspect in the ministry. It opens doors to connect and engage with one another. But don't take my word for it, take Paul's. Next, the overseer must not be violent or quarrelsome, but gentle. So you see those two knots and one thing you should do. Well, the duty of a shepherd is to love and guide the church of Jesus. As 1 Corinthians 13 tells us about love, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love cannot ever be violent or quarrelsome because love does not ever insist on its own way if it's truly love. James 4.1 asks, What is it that causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Violent and argumentative men have a passions going on, raging in their hearts. So if the elder may not be characterized by that inner chaotic state, of course the outward result of that state is also to be forbidden. So instead of being a fighter or a bull in a china shop, the overseer must be gentle and kind. That doesn't mean that he just lets sin and evil go. That doesn't mean that he's too afraid to confront others. But that when he has to confront sin, he does so gently out of love. Restoration and fruitfulness must be the end goal of every interaction in the church. And if that is the pursuit of an elder, he will be shepherding well. But what if the candidate or the elder doesn't manage his family well? 
What if he cannot handle his house? Will he make a good elder? Well, Paul's answer is that he will not. While it is not required that an elder be married or have kids, if he is married with kids, it does offer a litmus test for his ability to lead and to shepherd. In verses 4 through 5, Paul says that an overseer must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So this is a very difficult and sometimes debated requirement. Not one of us is going to have a perfect home in any sense of the word. And even the most well-behaved, perfect little children are going to cause pure mayhem at times. Every married couple is going to struggle at some point. So what is the deciding factor? Well, much like our personal walk with Christ, you have to look at the broader picture to see our growth in holiness. So what is the bigger picture of your family life? Are you a respected father and husband by others? Are you teaching your kids how to read the Bible, how to pray, how to repent, and how to serve one another? And perhaps more importantly, are you modeling those things yourself? Are your children completely out of control or just energetic kids acting like kids? One is a sign of mismanagement and one is a sign of having kids. Furthermore, this also refers to kids within the home. The Greek word does not include adult children, and even teenagers did not normally fall under this word. And that's important because nobody, not even parents, can make their children believers. All you can do is train them and pray for them that God will save them. And so there comes a point in time where that child has to claim the faith of his parents as his own or her own, or they have to reject it. The best elders in the world can still have unbelieving adult children. But the principle does seem to be that if they live under your roof, then they need to be under your discipline. And many elders actually step down because of unbelieving adult children, and I respect the conscience of those men. But I don't necessarily think that that is what Paul is trying to encourage in these verses, nor do I think that a failure at one point necessarily permanently bans you from the office of elder. A larger point of what Paul is getting at is that the elder needs to be able to manage his household well in order to manage the church well. That is the bigger principle. So Paul does not require the elder to save all the children himself, but rather to lead the household well regardless of the end outcome of the children because he can't control their hearts. So all that to say, there are many difficult things surrounding this portion of the text. So we need to be quick to show grace So combining all of these inward and outward qualities together amounts to a very high standard for the office of elder. No one is going to perfectly fulfill these in every way. But the standard needs to be high because Christ is the chief shepherd. And the church is precious in his eyes. Therefore, it's only right that only holy and godly men take up this office of elder. And yet even then, they will fail at times to completely measure up. I'll freely confess that I do not always measure up to these requirements. Ruling elders here are not perfect, and I know they will tell you that themselves. The call is not perfection, but faithfulness. We are called to dependence upon the Lord and his grace to meet this high standard. Without his help, we won't meet those requirements and we won't shepherd well. 
But in full reliance upon his spirit, we can model Christ to the church. And that leads us to the last point. So point three, elders must be especially careful. <clears throat> so building on all of these character traits we've already talked about is this overlying concept of carefulness. The road of the overseer is one full of many traps and one full of many dangers. Personal sins and the attacks of the devil are ever-present dangers. But there are also just many difficult tasks to perform as an overseer. And because of that, the elder needs to be careful in many different ways. First, Paul says that the overseer must be able to teach, and that may surprise you for me to list that here. People often say that this is the only quality mentioned that has anything to do with gifting and skill. And I think I've probably repeated that very thing before. But after studying this passage all week, I'm going to argue it's one of two. And we'll talk about the second in a moment. But being able to teach is pivotal in the sanctification of the church. And sometimes we act as if once you come to the faith, you're just done growing. You know the truth. You know Jesus. That's it. That's all you need. But you must continue to strive after holiness to grow in your faith. Because there's no such thing as a stagnant Christian. Personal Bible reading and prayer are crucial, but that needs to be then reinforced with good teaching from the church. Because interpretation is not a purely personal or individualistic process. More often than not, a purely subjective interpretation is normally a wrong one. We need to rightly understand the scriptures together so that we understand good doctrine. And without solid teaching, the sheep will wonder as sheep without a shepherd. And so the elder must be able to positively teach the truths of God's word and apply them to the hearts of believers. We need to build up and fortify the church in the truth. But there's another element to being able to teach. The overseer is not just to positively teach the word, but also to confront heresy and misunderstandings negatively. So you build up with good teaching and you tear down bad theology before it causes damage in the church. And that's why I put this quality under this category of being careful. It is the elders who are to guard the theology of the church, teaching what is life-giving and destroying that, or condemning that which is life-destroying. And discerning between good and bad doctrine requires a very careful eye. It requires careful practice and doctrine to guard against error and even milder misunderstandings that can cause a lot of damage in the church. Now, I'm not saying from that that every elder needs to have a degree in theology or has to be a brilliant published theologian. But they do need to understand the core principles of the faith, and they need to be able to turn around and explain those to others. So in word, deed, lesson, and example, elders must be leaders in teaching and applying the truths of God's word. Next, the overseer must be careful in managing his family and the church. So when Paul says that he must manage his household well, I think there is skill and gifting involved. And this is the other skill requirement that I think is often overlooked in this list. So beginning with a family, it takes a lot of wisdom to teach and lead. It is the proving ground for whether or not someone has the capabilities to lead and shepherd well. If you are incapable of teaching your kids and leading your family, how do you expect to teach a larger group of people? many of whom will not be your own children. And so both in the family and the church, leading well is crucial for the health and the witness of the church and the family. And it's something that takes great care and patience. 
Next, Paul specifies that an elder must not be a recent convert. And you may have noticed that he gives no further explanation or timeline on when someone is no longer a recent convert. So the question is, how do we know if it's too soon for a man to become an elder? Well, this is not an answer we want to get wrong either when you look at the consequences that Paul lists. He says that a new convert who has not had the time to build up that humility or that understanding of his dependency on Christ can become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And some take that to mean that he will be punished by being handed over to the devil. And others think that he will receive the same penalty for judgment on the devil's pride as the devil does. Regardless, it's a terrifying outcome. I do take the former, though, that he will be handed over to the devil as a punishment for a time. When we connect this requirement to the rest of the qualities listed, it seems that there needs to be enough time for the man to display these qualities faithfully. If a man becomes a Christian, develops these traits, and continues in them through various trials and seasons of his life, he's ready to become an elder. On the other hand, some men fail to mature and grow in these qualities after being believers for decades. They would not be fit despite not being recent converts. So really, maturity and proven faithfulness are the marks of going from a recent convert to a mature believer. And normally that takes place over many years, but there is no set amount of time. Along very similar lines, Paul warns that the overseer must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So having a good reputation is an important part of being an elder. Now, some go too far with that reputation thing, and they care about their reputation before the good of others or the glory of God. And if that's the case, that's idolatry. But for the sake of the church, elders need to be well thought of by outsiders. If a man treats everyone around him in the community horribly, then he will become known for that. And then when his neighbors find out that he's a leader in that church, guess what? That church has immediately been written off and the doors to the gospel have been closed in their hearts. The church suffers shame and that man opens himself up for all sorts of evils. Proverbs 22.1 says that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. Through a good reputation comes opportunities for the gospel, and it builds up the reputation of the local church. So keep in mind also that this concept does not just apply to the elders. All of us must strive relentlessly to be well thought of by the people around us in the community. And it's not for our sake, but for the sake of the witness of the church in Jesus' name. Well, despite the warnings and the high qualifications of this passage, don't lose sight of the preciousness of this office. It is a noble, honorable, and even a beautiful calling. To desire to become an elder is a good thing. A church with godly overseers in place will bear fruit abundantly. So despite the difficulties and the challenges involved, it is an office worth pursuing. Because through his office, Jesus has chosen to minister to his church and to build it up. He's the one who established the office, and he's the one who calls men into that office. And for that reason, all of you should care about the office of elder and the men who enter into it. You should care about the office of elder because Jesus cares deeply about the office of elder. 
And the reason our Lord cares so deeply about the office of elder is because he cares so deeply about his church. It's out of a love for his church that he has appointed this office and set up such high standards for it. You'll know these words from Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or any wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Then that is the model for how we are to love and serve the church. And you cannot do that perfectly. The calling is extremely high and the challenge difficult. And on your own, I can promise you that you would fail. But he who gave his life for his bride and calls you to the office stands ready to work through you. It is not by your strength or skill that you serve as an elder, but his grace. Understand that and remember that. Rest in the promises of the gospel, feed on Christ, and lead others in doing the same. Because we're not, we are simply ministers of that grace, proclaiming the Lord's favor on his beloved ones. We're not superheroes and we don't do anything alone. We proclaim Christ and him crucified. And for everyone else, see that love that Jesus has for you as his church. Not only did he die to redeem you and cleanse you in order to make you his own, but he's also set up under shepherds to guide and protect you until he brings you home to glory to be with him forevermore. He has given men to the church to guide, protect, and walk you through life. But you also need to understand that your elders will fail at times. They are reliant on God's forgiveness and grace just as you are. And I pray that even as we fail, we will also model how to repent, how to confess, and how to continue resting in the grace of God. And I pray that all together the Lord would be working among us to bear fruit and to build up his church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, every time I read through these qualifications, I am convicted. (laughs) I see how far short I fall of these standards, and I'm sure all the other elders here feel the same way. And yet, Lord, you provide the grace and the abilities. You provide the blessing so that you may call men to this office, men who are imperfect, who on their own are, are really not worthy to lead. And yet through Christ, through his grace, through his spirit, they are enabled to do so. And it's not for our sake, but for the sake of your church, because you would see your church grow. Because you work among us to bear fruit. It is you who calls us out of the world, who saves us, who matures us, and who one day calls us home to glory. And so, Lord, we rest in your providence and we rest in your grace, knowing that by your strength alone, we prosper. So, Lord, build us up and grow us, we pray. And we pray it in your name.